for Radio 1 91FM podcast. You're tuned in to the R1 News, your stop for news and current affairs on the airwaves, 11 to 12 weekdays here on Radio 1 91FM, te reo irirangi kōtahi. Tēnā koutou i tēnei āta, this is R1 News here on Radio 1, te reo irirangi kōtahi, whodrahi no te kaumawaru o Honganoi, Monday the 18th of July. Ko Quintin tēnei, and I'm here to take you through the news of today, from now until 12pm. Coming up on the show i tēnei rā, we have Eileen with the headlines and weather. Following that, I'll be speaking with Kerry Nuku from the New Zealand Nurses Organisation to discuss if unvaccinated nurses should be allowed to return to work at hospitals. Following that, I'll be speaking with James Howard, project manager at Transit Group, about their double-decker bus that was recently converted from a diesel-powered engine to one that is electrically powered. Then, after that, I'll be speaking with Dr. John O'Squire from the University of Otago's Department of Physics about the recently released images from the James Webb Telescope that have been capturing the attention of the internet. Then, as always, we'll have Fox Mayer from Critic Tiarohi to talk about this week's issue. But right now, though, here is There's a Tuesday with Girls at Night on R1 News.
You are listening to R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. Eileen is now here with the headlines. The R1 News headlines. Tēnā koutou, ko Eileen aho. Half-price public transport and cuts to the fuel excise tax and road user charges will continue to the end of January. The extension to the charges, initially brought in in March, are intended to reduce cost of living pressures on New Zealanders. Finance Minister Grant Robertson said it will provide certainty to New Zealanders in the face of volatile fuel prices and an increasing cost of living. The Green Party has welcomed the extension and wants free public transport as the next step. Meanwhile, National and ACT have more cynical approaches, with National Finance spokesperson Nicola Willis calling the approach Band-Aid Economics. An investigative report from the Texas House of Representatives has found systemic failures in the law enforcement response to the Uvalde school shooting that killed 21. The 80-page report has found failures in state and federal law enforcement as well as the local Uvalde authorities. More than an hour passed between the shooting at Robb Elementary began and police confronting and killing the gunman. Police response has been condemned as hesitant, haphazard and cowardly. Nineteen fourth grade students and two teachers were killed in the attack. Severe weather warnings are in place across the South Island, with gusts of close to 200 kilometres per hour already recorded. Heavy rain has started in the west coast, Fiordland and parts of the high country. Canterbury Lakes and Westland, south of Ōtira, can expect up to 450 millimetres of rain, while Fiordland and the Otago Lakes can expect up to 320 millimetres. Met Service warns the deluge could cause surface flooding and slips. And those were the headlines on R1 News. Now, Kitepehia te Ahua o te Rangi. How's the weather? The R1 News weather. Itenaira Otipoti can expect strong nor'westerlies gusting up to 100 kilometers per hour with a high of 17 and a low of 8. A strong wind warning is in place until 11pm tonight and a few showers are expected this evening. Apopo it is set to rain right throughout the day with southwesterlies turning southeasterly in the afternoon, a high of 12 and a low of 6. That was the R1 News Headlines. Catch up at r1.co.nz forward slash news or find us at Radio 191 FM on Twitter or R1 News NZ on Instagram and tune in to R1 News at 11am on weekdays. That was Eileen with the headlines and weather. Coming up on the show, I will be speaking with Kerry Nuku from the New Zealand Nurses Organisation about whether or not um, unvaccinated nurses should be allowed to return to work. But right now, here is The Beths with Silence is Golden on R1 News.
is golden, is golden, it's golden. Silence is golden, is golden, it's golden. You are listening to R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. Hospitals across Aotearoa are feeling the brunt of New Zealand's nursing shortage amid both an uptick in COVID-19 cases and a booming winter flu season. Some controversial groups such as Nurses for Freedom, widely believed to be associated with notorious conspiracy theory organisation Voices for Freedom, have been calling for unvaccinated nurses to be allowed to go back to work. Minister for Health Andrew Little has said that the government will be reviewing vaccination policies. With the healthcare system under immense strain and nurses feeling the brunt, something needs to change. I'm joined on the phone now by Kerry Nuku from the New Zealand Nurses Organisation to talk about the issues. Kia ora Kerry, it's great to have you on. Kia ora. Uh, so Kerry, what is the New Zealand Nurses Organisation's position on nurses who refuse to get the COVID-19 vaccination? Um, The position with our organisation and indeed nursing in general is we always follow the scientific approach to the management of care. So our position is that we support the government's mandates around how services needing to be vaccinated. That's also in alignment with the Nursing Council, our regulatory body, that calls us a professional responsibility and also supports the position of the Ministry and the Ministry of Health and Public Health experts around mandate. And so how are working conditions for nurses at the moment? Well, I'm, I think there seems to be a political hang-up around whether this is a crisis, whether this is a challenge, whether quite how to call it. And our organisation has been really clear that this is a crisis in, in terms of nursing workforce shortages. This is the worst it's ever been. And therefore, our ability to carry out the roles of nurses is significantly compromised because of nursing shortages, because of nurses um, succumbing to those winter ailments as well, and shortages because of the flu. So the quality of care that we're able to provide is somewhat diminished. But also, our nurses have been standing up front line dealing with COVID-19, dealing with the pressures of a system that has failed to invest in nursing for many, many years. So they're burnt out, they're tired. And um, I think talking to a colleague that said, uh, I don't know whether or not I'm going on to a shift that's going to be fully complemented with um, staff, is hugely significant. So there is enormous pressure across all of the system at the moment. So what changes would you like to see made at a national level to help with current nursing shortages? So we've got to look at some immediate changes. We've got to improve the working conditions that currently exist and there has to be something um, more urgently done around coping with these workforce shortages. We're um, robbing Peter to pay Paul in some situations. We're taking staff that are already burnt out and we're asking them to and begging them in many situations to go and fill the roster gaps that are depleted. We've got to take this by the hand and say, what are we going to do collectively as a group of health professionals? Um, doctors are also under the same degree of pressure. So we've got to look at how is the government going to tackle this. We've asked for a long time now to be at the table to help redesign, help be involved in how to manage this crisis. Um, the government's refused to have us there. So what is the government's way out of this then? And we're happy to participate. We've got an um, 
responsibility to protect our members and public when they're in, in using health services. So we want to see what the government's strategy is. We know that we've got um, to improve working conditions, the health and safety of nurses and the public, but we want to get to the table and have those discussions with the um, ministry and the government around this. Looking particularly at the short term, what support would you like to see provided for nurses who are burnt out and who are working all these extra shifts? We've got to give them some security and certainty that they're going to have staff um, fill these gaps currently, whether that means decompressing some of the wards or some of those other pressures, whether it means shutting down wards and forming public um, delays um, in elective surgery. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk at the moment around immigration. But immigration isn't the silver bullet. We need to look at how many nurses are currently inside the country that want to do their competencies to practice and reduce the cost barriers to allow them, um, many of them experienced people, to come and work and fill some of those gaps across the country. We've got to look at how we support nurses to continue to train and how we support them in their training to graduate um, and then fulfil some of these new nurse graduate positions. But it's many of our older nurses that are retiring, that are burnt out and choosing to leave the profession. And we've got to talk with them and see what is part of the solutions we can offer. Certainly this um, whole pay equity issue needs to be something that's tackled with and so we can see that there is a commitment from the government to support nursing into the future as well. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me, Kerry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Kerry Nuku from the New Zealand Nurses Organisation talking about working conditions for nurses at the moment and also whether or not uh, unvaccinated nurses should be allowed to come back to work. Coming up on the show, I will be speaking with James Howard from Transit, the transportation company, about a double-decker diesel bus that was recently converted to have an electric engine. But right now, here is Hart the Unclear with Mannequins on R1 News.
You are listening to R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. It is 24 minutes past 11 and that was Heart the Unclear with mannequins. Wadadapa based transport company Transit have recently convert- completed an engine conversion for a double-decker bus from diesel to electric. The conversion, which is the first of its kind in the southern hemisphere, is already carrying passengers across Tamaki Makoto. Transit believes that this is a cost-effective way for New Zealand to meet its public transport decarbonisation targets on time and simultaneously provides a means by which businesses aren't left with old, outdated buses. I'm joined on the phone now by James Howard, Project Manager from Transit. Kia ora, James. Thanks for joining me. Morning. Thanks for having us. Uh, so, James, first question is, will Transit be offering this conversion to other providers? Yeah, I can't see why not. I think it's a very innovative approach. Um, we just did some numbers the other the other week. There's 2,500 public transport buses throughout New Zealand, and we've only got 100 or so electric buses, and we've only got 12 or 13 years to get rid of these buses. Um, so I think it presents a really, really viable way of getting rid of those diesel buses and not simply just leaving a diesel bus um, out in smaller regions throughout New Zealand. And so on that note, most of those 2,500 buses won't be double-decker. Is this also going to be something done on single-storey buses? Yep. So the type of model that we've done it on uh, our BCI maker model bus um, can be done easily on our single-deck option. So we've got about 130 of these um, style vehicles within within our fleet alone. Um, And are there plans to work on that 130 over the coming in the coming years? Yeah, so we've got funding for two buses um, from ECA, that's the Electricity and Energy Conservation Authority. Um, so it's really a pilot study to prove the viability and feasibility, but we'd love to expand it out to um, more and more buses throughout our fleet. And so how, what is the cost of one of these conversions, and how would that compare to, say, buying a new electric bus? So a new electric double-deck bus that's uh, very similar to the bus that we converted uh, costs more than $1.1 million. Um, the converter bus is cheaper than that. Um, we've done a total cost of ownership exercise in respect to the savings that you get from um, electric vehicles not having to pay road user charges and the price of diesel versus electricity. We see the cost is um, coming down further and further as we become more efficient and uh, cost-effective at converting these buses, but there's definitely a cost saving. And how long does it take to convert one of these buses? Um, so our first one took around six months to convert. However, with uh, the knowledge that we've gained from that conversion, we see our ability to um, produce one or two converter buses every sort of month, really. One a fortnight is probably the number that we'd really like to hit. Um, and was this process to convert these, was this designed in New Zealand or is this coming from somewhere overseas? So I think it's one of the really success stories of this project is that our team in the Wairarapa designed where the batteries would go. For example, we took a battery, uh, put a battery where the diesel tank was, and we did a lot of the engineering ourselves with a little bit of overseas expertise. Um, but the project was driven, and the master strokes were really developed from our team of the Wairarapa, which I think is fantastic. Excellent. And finally, can you just give me a bit of an overview? What's it like on these electric buses? How often do you have to charge them? So, for example, we took uh, this particular diesel double-deck up from Wellington through to Auckland. We uh, can travel about 250 to 60 kilometres. We went from Wellington, Palmerston North, charged to our charger in Palmerston North through Auckland. So 250 to 60 kilometres is the range of that bus. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thank you. That was James Howard, Project Manager from Transit, to talk about their recently converted diesel 
double-decker bus to an electric engine. Right now we have Matthew Young with Like Falling, and then coming up after that I will be speaking with Dr John O'Squire from the Department of Physics at the University of Otago about the recently released images from the James Webb Telescope. But once again, here is Matthew Young with Like Falling.
a little time to myself. You always go on about brain health. I give it to you cause I wanna impress. Too much stuff that I need to address. You put your lips on my mouth. You put your lips on my brain cells. How I'm gonna be express you when I You are listening to R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. It is 24 minutes to 12, and that was Board Housewives Club with Bench Impress You. Recently released images by NASA from the James Webb Telescope have captivated the internet. The new images show some of the most high-resolution images of space that we've ever seen. The telescope was a joint effort between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Energy in Agency, sorry, and has a light collecting area roughly six times that of the Hubble Space Telescope. These images also have uh, exciting implications for astronomy. I'm joined now on the phone by Dr. John O'Squire from the Department of Physics at the University of Otago to talk about these images. Kelda Jono, thanks for joining me. Kelda. Um, so, Jono, can you tell me what do these pictures? I mean, there's quite a few of them, but what do they show? Sure. So there's, there's, yeah, there's five or six that they, they released. And um, I guess in a sense, they're, they're more like a teaser of what's to come from this brand new telescope because these are just kind of the, the ones they, they took in the, 
a relatively short time after the commissioning phase when they were figuring out how the whole telescope worked. So kind of already they're really exciting and, and showing us new things, which I guess gives you an idea of the potential of what we'll be seeing in the next few years from the um, James Webb. So there's, there's kind of a few different things. Probably the, the most famous one is the, the one of all the galaxies. So that was probably the first one they released, I think. It's called the Deep Field, and, and this just shows lots of... Well, if you look um, kind of without... Not very carefully, it just looks like a lot of splotches of different colours. But each of those little splotches is a different galaxy. Um, and they're just kind of looking way back in the universe um, and and seeing... It, as it was you know, many billions of years ago, just after the start of the universe. So that one's pretty exciting. Um, they, they have these uh, called the cosmic cliffs. Uh, there's this picture of stars being formed in, in action. There's a, a picture of stars blowing off uh, these kind of big clouds as they, as they fly out. Some things related to black holes and galaxies colliding. And then um, finally, a, a picture of um, an exoplanet. Uh, that they're trying to characterize, understand its the content of its atmosphere. And so, these these images they're quite exciting. And you mentioned that these are just the the first ones to come. Um, how will these and future images affect the field of astronomy? Um, yeah, so I think it's it's going to be a really big. Well, the JWST, the James Webb, in, in general, is going to be really important for astronomy. So Hubble. We, we like to think of this as basically the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. And Hubble uh, has been used just sort of... It's, it's kind of hard to, <laughs> hard to describe how important it's been for astronomy in the last 20 years or so, because people use it for basically everything. So James Webb is going to be the successor to that. It's going to be the, the go-to telescope that if, you can, if you're allow, allowed to use it, if you're able to get some time using it, then it will give you the best observations out of out of anything else uh, in it in its wavelength range. Um, so there's there's a few. Um, I, I guess the the most important difference with James Webb compared to Hubble is that it's not actually looking in the normal light that we see with our eyes, so visible light. So instead, it's looking with infrared. So this is just like the idea that kind of you might normally have of an infrared camera where you can see people because they're emitting radiation. So that's how James Webb looks at the universe, in this infrared radiation rather than in visible light. And the reason this is so important, well, there's a few. Um, so a big one it relates to that the deep field picture of galaxies I said before. So the older things are in the universe, the further away things are in the universe the more their light gets shifted towards the infrared. So everything that's really, really old looks infrared rather than visible, and so Hubble couldn't really see it. But James Webb will be able to, so we'll be able to see much further back than we could with Hubble. And then there's also all sorts of other advantages, like you can see through dust clouds, which would otherwise obscure your view, and uh, you can you can watch different different things happen, basically. So there's all sorts of exciting stuff to do, both because it can take much better images than before because it's much more powerful and because it's sort of seeing different types of light, which will allow different astronomy. And so that kind of leads to my next question about the colouring of these photos. Um, if this is infrared, how does this colouring that we see in the photos compare to what is actually there? And also, um, 
you know, what would you see if you were just looking out into space with your own eyes? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's um, our eyes see in, as I said, in the visible range. So this is a kind of uh, a with light with shorter wavelengths than what is seen by um, by James Webb. So if you looked up, well, James Webb, I should say, it can see just sort of very red stuff. So so the stuff that James Webb can see, you might see with your eye as kind of a very red thing, but then it sees all sorts of other stuff as well. So maybe the best way to explain it is to say that what we see with our eyes isn't really particularly special as far as the universe is concerned. So visible light isn't a particularly special range. It just happens to be what our eyes can see because that's what the sun emits. So the um, infrared, there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on there too. And I think the best way to think about it is just is like different colors, right? So we're used to the idea of some things being red and some things being blue and some things being green. So blue things have short wavelengths. Green things have somewhat longer wavelengths. Red things have somewhat longer wavelengths than that. Well, just continue upwards to longer wavelengths and longer wavelengths and longer wavelengths. That's the infrared. So there's no fundamental difference between it and, and the visible light. It's just that our eyes happen not to be able to see it. So when they then want to show you a picture of what the telescope sees, well, obviously they want to make it into a form that our brains can interpret, right? So, so they turn you know, the, some of the shorter wavelengths, they turn into sort of bluish colors, and some of the longer wavelengths, they turn into reddish colors. So it's not exactly what you would see, but it is basically a, de- a depiction of what the universe looks like, if that makes sense. Excellent. And so of these a few images that have been released so far, what's the most exciting, or which one's your personal favorite? So I think that the deep field one is, is the most exciting one to me, so that's the one with all the different galaxies in um, the reason being, basically, so imagine you take a, a grain of sand and you put it in your hand and then you hold it out uh, in your outstretched arm. So the, the size of that image in which you're seeing all these galaxies from James Webb is as if you were looking through that grain of sand. So it's just this tiny, tiny little patch of the sky. And they chose this little dark patch and then they just stared at it for 12 hours. And that's what they saw, all these galaxies. So it just shows that the universe is completely filled with galaxies, um, which are all doing their thing really far away. And uh, it's, it's kind of this amazing um, just idea in your mind that it, it stretches out so far. So that's the kind of science region, reason that one's particularly exciting. The technological reason is there's these kind of great comparisons online between what James Webb sees and what Hubble sees. And you can see that James Webb just sees way more stuff. Like, it's much clearer. They see many more galaxies, and you can see much more detail in these images. And that's despite the fact that this the same picture was taken over a much, much shorter time frame. So Hubble took it over, like, 10 days, and James Webb only took it over 12 hours. And even still, you see heaps more detail. So it just gives a taste of sort of the much greater power of James Webb compared to Hubble and and what it's going to be able to do in the future, I think. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.
That was Dr. John O'Squire from the Department of Physics at the University of Otago to talk about the new James Webb Telescope. Right now we have Sam Charlesworth with Girl on the Wind, and then I'll shortly be speaking to critic Tiarohi editor Fox Mayer about this week's issue. Since the day we died Hoping for an afterlife I still remember your smile So sweet in the dying light As we said goodnight
You are listening to R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. It is 11 minutes to 12 and I'm joined in studio now by critic Te Arohi, editor Fox Mayer, to talk about the census issue. Kia ora Fox. Kia ora, good morning. Um, so my favourite piece this week was definitely your one about the Irish rugby team after their match last week. Um, I think you're just going to have to give us a rundown of that one. Oh gosh, yeah, it was, it was hilarious. We heard that um, after the Irish team finished screwing with the All Blacks, they went to town and unscrewed all the light bulbs in Vault 21 so that when it came time for the bar staff to close down, they tried to turn on the lights and kick everyone out and they wouldn't come on. And then uh, (laughs) the Irish team on their way out apparently screwed them all back in and and went in and had a good night in town. I mean, I quite like the courtesy of screwing them all back in. Oh, yeah. It it was perfect, (laughs) perfect Irish mischief. You know, it was was very on brand. Do you reckon it's the first time they've done that? No way. That that seems like a coordinated strike. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know where you'd get that idea from, eh? I think it's probably been passed down. That seems very it seems very Irish. Yes. Yes. And so another one, I mean, there's awesome photos of people canoeing, kayaking down the Leith when it was flooding the other week. Oh yeah, how cool was that? Um apparently it turns into quite a gnarly rapid when it's in flood like that and they you know, they were going down in their kayaks made for great photos, but they were saying how, you know, they're not used to having to dodge past shopping carts and needles and stuff like that. So it <laughs> definitely added... I mean, yeah, I think there's a road cone in the background of one of the photos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah some, <laughs> some some local flair to the hazards in, in that river. It was it was pretty funny. You didn't get a ride-along? Uh, no, I don't think they could have supported our the weight of our... Um, of our journalistic talent in, in the boat there. <laughs> are you, you know, going to upskill so you can practice that for next time or That's leave probably, that to It's probably a good idea, yeah. yeah. Well, I told our photographer if, if he was a real photographer, he'd be in the river, mm. which he'd kind of Getting good, idea. like, nose-on photos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, the UniQ story as well. Yeah. Can you give us a rundown of that? Yeah, I mean, huge congrats to them. The the Sweat, for, Sweat with Pride um, month-long event was nationwide competition and the UniQ uh, Uni club here on campus came in top of the country in terms of fundraising so good 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 for them and wasn't a small amount of money either was no it, it was like, it was quite considerable i think it was like, i think 13 was the number i think, I think that grand, sounds familiar yeah it was, it was quite, a, quite a bit of money yeah and then of course it's the census issue <clears> so we do have to talk about that a bit um the thing i found most interesting was that the majority of respondents were fourth year yeah i mean i think it kind of speaks to you know that's sort of the last year that's on campus that was sort of pre-COVID, so they might be the ones that are still most engaged with student media, you know, mm-hmm. because that's, over COVID, we've seen definitely a decline in people picking up magazines, going online, stuff like that, so I reckon that's probably where that's coming from. And also just procrastinating dissertations by filling out censuses oh, online. Oh, that is a good <laughs> point. That is probably what it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I can safely say that it was me procrastinating work when I filled it out, so... Um, and your inspiration for questions, are you looking for answers for anything in particular, or is it just kind of something that you're not, you know, not well, too sure what's going on on campus? There's definitely a few that are expected, you know, like how are you going to vote or whatever, and unsurprisingly it was mostly green. Um, there was that, and then, you know, what vape flavor do people like? That's always been a fun, popular one every year. And, and it and changed this year, I believe. It did, yeah. It switched from, oh gosh, it switched from something to... to from peach to grape, I think, for what it's worth. But it looks like also student vapor numbers are, are going down, which is probably a good thing to see. I mean, yeah, you talked about that in the vaping issue earlier mm. this year, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. Just dying fad or people kind of getting getting well, clued up, do you reckon? I hope it's people getting clued up. I mean, either way, it's probably good to see it on the decline. But, um, you know, if we're switching flavors on the way down, you know, but for what it matters, I'm not sure. <laughs> and then Mr. Worldwide this week. That's a fun, oh, a fun looking yeah. sculpture. Um, oh. How'd you find that? 
Well, it took a while. I mean, for, for listeners that can't see it, there's a big red sculpture that of a, of a rock lobster that we had to find out where in the world that was. And at first, I thought this was going to be easy. I could just Google rock lobster sculpture and find it. So instead of Googling it, I, I went around and clicked around in Western Australia for a while. I, I looked up um, where the best places to fish for that are and, and mm. sort of tried to match that to Google and, and go around in the towns that look like they'd be big enough to fundraise a sculpture like that. And <laughs> I started in, in sort of near Adelaide, and about two and a half hours later, I was I'd gone all over Australia, and I was back in Adelaide finding this sculpture, which was in Kingston Southeast. Um, so I felt like a bit of an idiot because I'd scrolled like right past it. <laughs> Went everywhere but where the sculpture was. Yeah, exactly. So I was really kicking myself by the end of that one. It shouldn't have taken as long as it did. But hey, you know, good submission. And I mean, there's a few different photos, a surprising number of lobster statues. Yeah, there's more than one. And believe me, <laughs> that was that was heartbreaking to twice see big lobster on the map and zoom in and realize that it was a different big lobster. Yeah, because I mean, I saw the photo of the lobster and went, oh, you would have got that in like two minutes. Yeah, well, you'd think. <laughs> I thought. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. Folks. No problem. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Uh, this has been R1 News here on Radio 1 for the 18th of July. Um, as always, you can tune in weekdays from 11 to 12 to keep up with all the biggest and best news from across Aotearoa and Otipoti. Right now, you have Moana and the Tribe with, oh, I should have read that name first, Upukoi, um, here on Radio 1.
That was the Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.